Rocky Top Sunrise is part of the Tennessee Holler Podcast Network. Follow the Holler for relentless coverage, shining a light on injustices throughout Tennessee. Find them online at tnholler.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the TN Holler. Today on Rocky Top Sunrise, Halle and Isabella dive into the intersections between COVID-19, climate change, and Medicare for All with Stephanie Kang, a good friend of Sunrise Tennessee, Nashville native, and health policy advisor to Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, the lead sponsor of Medicare for All in the House of Representatives. One, two, one, two, three, four. Which side are you on now? Which side are you on? Which side? Welcome back to Rocky Top Sunrise. My name is Isabella. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm currently on Cherokee land in East Tennessee. And my name's Holly. I use he, him pronouns, and I am on Cherokee Shawnee land in West Tennessee. Rocky Top Sunrise is a podcast that is part of the Tennessee Holler Podcast Network, and it comprises hubs from across the state of Tennessee, namely Nashville, Knoxville, and Franklin. The Sunrise Movement, who, that which we are a part of, is a grassroots movement that's building an army of young people to start a political revolution and pass the Green New Deal. And the Green New Deal is a plan to completely transform American society by getting rid of fossil fuels and creating a world where we have universal health care, a healthy environment, and racial and economic justice. On the subject of the healthy environment that we're fighting for and the racial and economic justice that we need to see in this country, Part of the vision of the Green New Deal is to create a world where everyone is treated equally. And in the time of the pandemic, we've seen that that is not at all the case. So Isabella is going to talk to us about what COVID means right now. Yeah, so um, I'm sure that most of us have been bombarded with information and facts on COVID, um, specifically in the past few months. We hear about it and think about it all the time. Um, But I think it's important to sort of just name a few of the numbers that um, illustrate the number of cases and deaths in the United States. So up until this point, there have been over 6 million cases in total, which is about 1% of the total population in the United States. And there have been over 185,000 deaths. But we know that the pandemic has affected certain groups and populations more than others and has exposed systematic injustices in this country, um, particularly in the context of health policy and justice. So marginalized populations are suffering the effects of COVID-19 at disproportionate levels, um, specifically those with economic disadvantages and racial minorities. According to an article published by the American Association of Medical Colleges, Poverty is the root cause of inequity in the midst of this pandemic and a determinant of who's going to be impacted more by the virus. Those without health insurance, adequate health care and housing, um, and those who are unemployed or forced to live on paycheck to paycheck are much less likely to seek care and medical support due to financial restraints. We're witnessing across the country utilities like water, electricity, and internet being shut off because people are unemployed and can't afford these basic needs and insecure living situations that aren't conducive to mitigating the spread of the virus, like homeless shelters, prisons, and overcrowded apartments are being 
disproportionately affected. In addition to these economic disadvantages, the pandemic has also highlighted racial injustices in America among Black people, Indigenous people, and people of color. And according to the same article by the American Association of Medical Colleges, about 23.5% of Native Americans and 13% of African Americans have diabetes, um, compared to only 8% of white people in this country. And diabetes is a chronic condition that leaves people much more susceptible to the potential dangers of the coronavirus. And due to systemic disparities like healthcare provision in minorities, communities and uneven levels of pollution in black and brown communities, racial minorities are predisposed to chronic conditions, stress and illnesses at much higher rates. Um, also immigrants, um, especially immigrants of undocumented status are much less likely to seek care um, or COVID testing during this time due to fears and stress around deportation and the possibility of being separated from their families and loved ones. So as we talk about throughout all of the episodes in this podcast, justice is justice is justice. Health justice is a racial justice issue and it's an economic justice issue. It's an immigrant rights issue. This is all in interconnected. Um, so Holly, do you kind of want to talk about how COVID-19 is tied to environmental justice as well as Medicare for all and the Green New Deal? Yeah. The CDC reported earlier this year that if you are indigenous, black or Hispanic, you are almost three times more likely to get COVID-19. And if you're black in the United States, you are two times more likely to die than a white person. Just let that sing in for a second. If you are black and you get COVID-19 in the United States, you are two times as likely to die than a white person in the United States. Why? At the beginning of the pandemic, people were saying that the virus is an equalizer, that it treats everyone fairly, that it doesn't matter your age or your race or your ideas, that you suffer from the virus the same. But we know from these statistics that that's not at all the case. So why is this an environmental issue? Well, it starts with the findings of the American Psychological Association. They reported that 39% of African-American minors, so people under 18, and 33% of Latino minors are living under the poverty line, which means that if you're living in poverty, obviously you can't have access to healthcare and you're gonna be much less likely to go to the hospital if you're showing symptoms of COVID-19. But even more complicated than that, we know that people are getting coronavirus because they have pre-consisting uh, conditions, like Isabel mentioned a second ago, diabetes. But one of the other main factors that's coming into play is asthma. A lot of people who live near coal power plants or other electricity generating stations are actually at much higher risk just because of where they live. A report from the United Church of Christ in 2007 found that things like cancer, asthma, and other diseases are going to affect people of color at a much higher rate. In fact, if you're living next to this kind of dangerous environment, next to a highway, a landfill, a factory, or other project, you are 47% likely to be a person of color. That's almost half the people living right next to these places like power plants and landfills that we know are poisoning our people and ending people's lives. But what's even more important is that the percentage of people of color outside this small radius is only 22%, meaning that if you're a person of color, you are almost twice as likely to be living next to one of these dangerous facilities. But it's not just because people are living there or only because housing is cheaper next to a power plant or a landfill where no one wants to live. 
the reason that we see so many people of color living next to these dangerous places, as the Yale School of the Environment found, is because they're actually being built in communities that are mostly people of color. Now, why is this the case? It's because governments and companies choose these people of color neighborhoods because they know that they're much less likely to have a strong enough political voice to be able to get the power plant or landfill or highway to be moved elsewhere. There's a great example of this happening right in Nashville. One of our main highways goes through one of the main black neighborhoods in the city. And this is important because it's not an accident. When we see uh, people suffering from COVID-19 and other issues, it is on purpose. It's part of systemic racism. And that's why Medicare for All and a Green New Deal are both parts of the environmental justice fight that we're seeing happen right now. So right after this intro, we're going to hear from the wonderful, amazing, inspiring Stephanie King, who is currently health policy advisor to US Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. So please stay tuned. She's going to be talking about all of the issues we've touched on just now, Medicare for all, Green New Deal, and injustice in the midst of a, a public health and environmental crisis. Thank you all so much for listening in and um, enjoy the episode. Welcome. Um, today, our guest is Stephanie Kang. Can you introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, everyone. My name is Stephanie Kang. I'm a Nashville native, um, and I am currently finishing my Doctor of Public Health degree at Harvard and also serve as the health policy advisor for Congresswoman Jayapal, who's the lead sponsor of Medicare for All in the House. So that's quite an elevator pitch of a resume. Can you talk about uh, what drew you to healthcare policy and how someone becomes the policy advisor for a U.S. Congressperson? Sure. Uh, it was a very long and crazy road. And if you had told me a couple of years ago I'd be working on this, I would have told you, what are you talking about? Um, I think especially with my background, I mean, I'm a first generation college graduate, let alone doctoral degree, um, and really had to fight my way to get here. Um, but I was always drawn to you know, equity-driven equity work and had worked mostly in global health because I wanted to address you know, the most complicated challenges our world is facing, right? And be part, and be part of serving the most underserved. Um, but the more I worked in global health and I worked in other countries, one, the more I saw that the U.S. government had its hand in all of these other countries, you know, with the way they're financing and determining their agendas, especially in healthcare, um, but very much was not, you know, guaranteeing healthcare within its own country. Um, and at the same time, I, I saw obviously the results of 2016 and, you know, by 2018, I, I had felt pretty hopeless. Um, and I felt like my house was on fire. It's the best way I can describe it. I felt like my home was on fire and everything was sort of deteriorating around me. Um, but then that was when this progressive movement, this huge wave came through and I you know, found that hope again. And I knew I just had to get involved, but I didn't know what that meant because I hadn't really worked in politics or policy. Um, but I, I did a lot of Googling and I was really lucky to have found a fellowship working for the Congressional Progressive Caucus who was led by Congresswoman Jayapal. And so this is basically the club of progressives in the house where you have Ilhan Omar, Ayanna Presley, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, all of them. Um, and they wanted me to work on Medicare for All. 
Um, and so that's what I started doing February of 2019, um, basically a few weeks before the bill was being introduced. So I was tasked with, you know, finishing up the drafting of that bill and um, helping introduce the bill with the largest coalition of um, you know, nurses and doctors and labor unions and racial justice organizations that we had really built out and um, just been able to be a part of that work and this movement for the past year. That is awesome. So a little bit more in depth about Medicare for all, it's this huge intersectional idea and we know that, you know, we need it in this country um, due to health injustice and disparities. Can you just tell us what it's like to be a part of writing a bill as amazing and, and big as Medicare for all? Um, well, first, I really appreciate you highlighting how intersectional it is, because I think a lot of the time that gets lost when politicians talk about it. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, a lot of times it's yeah. just about healthcare or just about coverage and costs. And it's so much more than that. I mean, we're really talking about justice and all the different ways that this intersects, whether it's health justice, this could, it's intersects with climate justice, social justice, economic justice, racial justice, right? Um, and so thinking of this bill and being a part of it, I mean, I'm really fortunate and I can't say this for a lot of people I know that work on the Hill in Congress and for different politicians, I've never had to sacrifice my values or what I believe in, in order to appeal to what I like, what was, you know, maybe the most pragmatic or practical or what was, you know, what, you know, what politicians had wanted to respond to. And so being able to have sort of that freedom is rare. Um, and especially being able to work on Medicare for all. I mean, it's just, I don't think it's often that you get a policy, um, especially in the health space that just really embodies what you believe in or what I believe in. And so approaching it, it's very much about not just getting everyone coverage, which is complicated for sure. Um, but, you know, in this country where we're spending $4 trillion a year, right? It's crazy how much money we spend. Um, but we have over 87 million people who either have no insurance or all, at all or insurance that's, that they can't use because it's too expensive. And this was before COVID, you know, we really have to address two things. One, we have to get everyone covered, and two, we have to bring down costs. And so when we say get everyone covered, I think sometimes I've seen this in the Democratic Party where people are like, well, just get somebody some coverage. Um, and it's really just not, that doesn't uphold the idea of true equity and, and universal healthcare. We mean guaranteeing healthcare the same level of high quality healthcare for everyone, doesn't matter your gender identity, doesn't matter your income, education status, um, zip code, you're going to be guaranteed the healthcare that you need. And this doesn't just mean medical care, this means mental health care, this means reproductive health care, this means long-term care, um, everything you need to be able to live with dignity. But it also means that you're cutting out the profit motive that has really threatened the lives of so many people um, and really addressing that at the core and making sure that we have a healthcare system that is actually about serving patients, which I think is the reason why anyone goes into healthcare, right? I don't think anyone goes in to deny people care or to argue on the phone with insurance companies. And so um, it's really about just creating a healthcare system for, for people and to be able to live dignified lives. I resonate with that so much. Um, a lot of my friends who are, you know, getting ready to be doctors and go into medical school, 
um, I hear them talking all the time about, you know, how much and how angry they are about all of these people in America who aren't getting the coverage that they need. Mm -hmm. But um, like you said, at the same time, there's this like visceral reaction that even people in the Democratic Party seem to have when they hear the phrase Medicare for all. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought it was really interesting what you said um, a moment ago about how the U.S. has its hands in the healthcare policies of other countries. Can you talk about what exactly that looks like and why people have this gut reaction to hate a policy that to some people seems like the right thing to do? Sure. I mean, I think that global health or international aid is rampant with very colonialistic and paternalistic policies, very, you know, very neo- neoliberalistic in the sense that um, I think people dump a lot of money in and try to determine how a country should function or work or uh, determine its priorities um, without really understanding or knowing what the country actually needs. And I think that a lot of times these are very like band-aid policies um, and I think you see that same sort of approach happening here, but sometimes even to a worse degree, because I think the, the root of that very visceral reaction you're describing, most of the time when I have met democratic politicians who speak that way, they've just, they've been privileged enough where they or their loved ones have not truly experienced what it's like to ever have to worry about affording the care that you need or deciding between paying your bills or are you going to be able to afford your rent if you go and get this you know procedure that you desperately need or pay for your medicine i mean i think they just haven't been faced with that and so it doesn't feel as real um it doesn't feel as as drastic as um as a lot of people describe i think i think a lot of people underestimate how much it's been hurting and killing people in this country um, I think COVID-19 has made it a lot clearer and I'm seeing the dial move some, but it's interesting. I mean, I think uh, one part is definitely a lack of experience and understanding, and this is across policies. It's not just healthcare. I think you have a lot of privileged people who who do not know how the real world works and thus that's how policies get determined. Um, but I also think that there is significant campaign finance reform that must be conducted in order to get the reforms that we needed because it's just very plain and clear that um, industry money absolutely influences policies. Um, I saw this all the time in the house where smaller, much, much smaller healthcare bills that were doing much, much smaller fixes would get killed or would get, you know, destroyed by lobbying efforts by industry uh, because they're very effective at what they do. Thank you so much for for just sort of talking about and bringing in that. and I, you sort of talked about this earlier and already on the episode, but just for folks out there who maybe aren't as familiar with sort of the, the terms associated with Medicare for All, um, can you just talk a little bit more, like, what does it mean to have single-payer health care? What does that mean at, at its root? Sure. Um, well, again, thanks. So, you're like on top of it. Thanks so much for like clarifying that when we're talking about Medicare for All, we're talking about single-payer health care. And what does that mean? I think a lot of times people get confused when they hear the word single pair and they think that that means I am a single pair. But what it means is the government is the pair. And so, you know, 
um, I'm always careful about what country I compare the system to, because I, I think um, some people think of the UK, where they have the National Health Service, and that's a government-financed health insurance program and a government-run healthcare system. And Medicare for All is not a government-run system. What it means is that basically the way that doctors and practices and hospitals work, you know, mostly private, are going to stay private. They are going to be able to deliver care the way that they want. Um, and actually even more and better than they do now because they won't be controlled by insurance companies telling them what care to provide or what they're allowed to do. But instead, everyone will have an insurance program guaranteed to them through the federal government that's going to provide them a comprehensive set of benefits. So like I had mentioned before, mental health, reproductive health, etc. Um, at no private insurance premiums, co-pays, or deductibles. So no financial barrier entry to care. Um, and it's gonna be for everyone. And when we say everyone, we mean everyone. And so what that does then is you get rid of the private insurance middleman, right? And so you save a lot of money that way and you actually have the government able to determine the costs of things which every other industrialized nation does, right? Um, but we don't, and we let companies charge whatever they want. I mean, I have millions of stories to tell about that and insane bills that people have received um, and um, allowing the government to really just rein in the profiteering in, this, in the healthcare. So it's like very common sense. Um, every country picked up on this. The, the US has been talking about single payer healthcare for over a century. Um, and so it's not like it's been this like just very recent surprise. Oh my gosh, we never knew of this solution. They've known, but like I had mentioned, the lobbying efforts have just been very successful at keeping it at bay. Totally. I mean, the amount of money that gets paid into preventing people from knowing the truth about this stuff is just astronomical. And I think, especially during the pandemic, we're seeing the results of that. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So I think kind of on the, the, the subject of, of paying, um, a big question in a lot of people's minds is, how are we going to pay for Medicare for All? And then also, what do you think the pandemic would have looked like differently um, if we had Medicare for All impacted in the first place? Oh, I have so many thoughts on this. Okay, so on the, on the paying for Medicare for All, it's actually really simple. Um, so like I had mentioned, we're already spending $4 trillion a year on healthcare. That's estimated to go up to $6 trillion a year in 10 years. So over the next 10 years, we're going to spend at minimum 50 to $55 trillion. I hate talking in trillions, right? Cause like what does trillions means? I mean, it's, thousands and thousands of billions. It's really just this obscene amount of money, 20% of our GDP spent on delivering healthcare, but achieving very poor health outcomes. And real, so- real, Sorry, oh, real quick. Yep. When you say we're spending the money, who exactly do you mean? Yes, so the way that's showing up is mostly in private insurance premiums. So we spend about a trillion of that in private insurance premiums. And then the rest of it shows up in like government premiums that are already happening for like Medicare, Medicaid, CHIP, and others. And then there's a small portion that's uninsured people who are paying things out of pocket. And so it's this compilation of, you know, whatever everyday people, families pay either to private insurance companies, 
to the government or to pr the hospitals themselves to pay four trillion dollars for healthcare. That's insane. It's insane, right? And again, eighty-seven million un uninsured, underinsured, lowest life expectancy, highest maternal mortality. I mean, it's like, where is the money going? Well, where is it going? <laughs> it's going to um, really high administrative costs, um, really high prescription drugs. And so the way that we pay for Medicare for all is one, we'd actually save a lot of money. I mean, there was actually a recent study done where they did an analysis of about 22 different cost analyses of what it would cost to do single payer in the US. And they found that every single study determined that Medicare for all single payer would cost less than our current system. So what it means is that because we're paying so much money towards private insurance companies, like I mentioned that over $1 trillion that goes to their premiums, instead of paying private insurance companies for plans that don't provide great coverage that still require you to pay out a huge deductible and co-pays, you pay either that amount of premium or less depending on your income to the government instead, and you would be guaranteed a comprehensive plan that has every doctor within network. And so it's not about finding new money. All the money is there. It's about redirecting the money that we're paying towards private companies into a public source. Does that answer that first question? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. <laughs> For your that definitely clarifies a lot of questions I had personally. Okay. Do you have any other questions on the paying part? Because it is, it's, the the insurance industry is very good at making it seem very complicated and scary and they'll say things like double yeah. taxes and blah blah Which well real is quick i do have a quick question just kind of to put a face to names like what are some of these lobbying groups called that are lobbying yeah. against things like like just to call these people out you know yeah so it's amazing i mean if you watch the democratic presidential primary debates i mean within every commercial break. I mean, it'd be hilarious. You have like Senator Sanders talking about there's going to be a dark money lobbying group that's going to tell you fear mongering messages. Right. And then in the commercial break, you have, it's called the Partnership for America's Healthcare Future. I can't imagine what consultant came up with that, but Partnership for America's Healthcare Future. And they're consistent, uh, consisting of American Hospital Association, Pharma, uh, all of the different insurance and, uh, associations. Um, the American Medical Association used to be part of them and they recently uh, separated. And I, I think that's because they're still against Medicare for all, um, but they want to be a little more open to different policies like buy-in and public option, while the Partnership for America's Healthcare Future is against any type of healthcare reform. Um, and so this is the huge, very powerful dark money group um, that funds a lot of these hundred million dollar ad campaigns that, you know, show you a very sad, innocent looking parent holding their child saying like, why would you wish socialism on me? Right. I mean, oh my God. <laughs> because so my dissertation work is on Medicare for all and the history of single payer and, and why is this moment unique? And, you know, they, they're not creative. <laughs> they have been using these exact same talking points for a hundred years. Right? Like it's the exact same and, you know, they've worked, but what's different this time is the grassroots movement. I mean, really, they never have competed against that. And it's why the idea of Medicare for all is more salient than ever. I mean, 
especially in this pandemic. Um, I, we've had 69% of voters across party lines are supportive of Medicare for all. Almost half of the Republicans, almost 70% of independents, and almost 90% of Democrats. Like it's, it, it, like it doesn't matter how much fear you try to put in. People are like, why? Why do we not have a good healthcare system? We, we can afford it. And so answering your other question about what would have been different, my goodness. <laughs> so my family is from South Korea. South Korea has a single payer healthcare system. And when I see the way that they've handled this across all, all um, parts of the response, I mean, it's, it's incredibly different. And I actually, I'm putting together a, a, a panel right now for the Medicare for All Congressional Caucus. And they're going to, you know, we're going to have a doctor from Canada, a doctor from Denmark, and a doctor from South Korea talk about how their COVID-19 response has, has been and why the single payer system has made a difference. And I asked them, I asked the doctor, I said, you know, if you didn't have a single payer healthcare system, how different would it have been for South Korea? And he just kind of laughed and he was like, we would have ended up like the US. That would be terrible. And it's really because a couple of um, things. Yeah. So this it's not again just about healthcare. This is about equity. This is about having um, a universal system that makes sure that everyone is taken care of, right? And so South Korea one very much values public health, not just about giving medicine, but thinking about the population. And having a single payer system means that everything is connected. That you have an organized system instead of. I mean, even just my father, he's been um, sick lately and I've been having to take him to appointments. Every single doctor, I have to fill out a different piece of paper for them, five different papers. None of them are connected. They all have different systems. Everyone's a different payer. It's just, it's crazy how much paperwork. That doesn't exist in these other countries, especially in South Korea. So you can coordinate. If hospitals need to have you know, funding, if they need to have PPE, right, the masks and ventilators they need, if we need to get data, it's all in one place. So you can actually you know, address public health issues because you have the data you need and you can coordinate across hospitals. But also, you don't have a single freaking person delaying care or wondering if they can afford care or wondering if they can afford a COVID test or receive care if they have COVID symptoms in a single payer healthcare and healthcare country. Um, while you have one in seven in the US saying that they will not receive care even if they have COVID symptoms, that um, you know, they're receiving $30,000 surprise bills even though they have insurance for the COVID treatment that they got. And so just those things just don't happen. And a lot of these countries too also provided significant economic support. They either covered you know, majority or full um, paychecks um, if somebody became unemployed, something obviously our country has not done. Um, they've been very good about providing you know, stimulus packages for businesses and, and making sure that no one is being evicted at this time. So there's really just, I think a single payer is not just about the healthcare, but all of the pieces connected and really representing what is the social contract that we have in this country? Do we even have one? And you know, what can we learn from others that have a really strong social contract? Yeah. So sort of tying into the idea of how Medicare for all is connected to practically every form of justice in this nation. Um, as you know, Sunrise and most folks listening to this episode know the, the sort of purpose of Sunrise is to fight for the Green New Deal and the vision of the Green New Deal. And the Green New Deal, um, part of a huge part of it is to create a world where racial injustice is eliminated, 
Um, and so sort of considering these ongoing uprisings um, for Black lives, um, fighting against racial injustice, how could Medicare for All contribute to this fight? Sure. I mean, I think we have to recognize that, you know, the disproportionate rates of deaths we are seeing in Black and Brown communities um, and hospitalizations and the economic impact COVID-19 has had on especially Black communities, what's happening there and, and you know, the racial injustice and police murders um, of Black men and Black women, it, it's all connected, right? All of those tensions and frustrations, they're absolutely connected. And so, um, you know, it's even, even in Tennessee, I mean, I think the, when you look at the rates of the hospital, rate of hospitalizations um, and deaths, depending on community and zip code, I mean, it's just like incredibly, incredibly clear um, who are being most impacted. And so just to be also very clear, Medicare for all or a single payer universal healthcare system does not fully address racial injustices, right? Of course not. It's much more complicated than that. Our healthcare system is in inherently racist and it would be a lot more dismantling of structural racism that would have to occur. Um, but I do deeply believe that we will never achieve racial justice without achieving a true universal healthcare system, without achieving health justice. I mean, health is simply at the foundation of everything in life. And that's why the Green New Deal even references Medicare for All, the need for a Medicare for All system, because you cannot have economic or racial justice without everyone having the basic level of you know, a, a basic level of, of an access to an, a dignified life met. And the way to do that is to ensure that they can be healthy. And so, um, you know, like I had mentioned, we have the highest maternal mortality rate in this country. It's three to four times worse if you are a black mother, uh, you're much more likely to die in childbirth. Um, and it, there's a lot more reasons than, again, just guaranteeing healthcare as to why that's happening. Um, but guaranteeing healthcare for everyone. And again, not just health, any sort of level of healthcare, but high quality guaranteed care um, for everyone, regardless of race, uh, is, is really important in terms of addressing racial injustices. I think that's super important as part of the picture that is being painted for a lot of people right now, especially as the protests are exposing more people to the idea of this like radical form of racial justice um, and equality. And at the same time, at, at the time when this podcast or when this episode is gonna be aired, Ed Markey two days ago um, beat Joe Kennedy um, for his position in the Senate. Um, he was the co-sponsor for the Green New Deal. And I think you know, all of those elements combined, the efforts of the Sunrise Movement and the efforts of the defunding the police in cities, um, several cities in America, I think are showing that we're in like a critical moment in history. So we were really curious to hear your perspective on how close we are to having universal healthcare and what it's going to take to pass Medicare for all. <sighs> so... And I'm glad you brought up the Marquee example, and I think um, it's such a such a 
anecdote to be able to show that people need to take progressives seriously. And I don't blame any progressive right now that might feel a little bit jaded or, or a little bit, uh, you know, perhaps disregarded because this year has been crazy. And, you know, we started off this year, I mean, where I met you, Holly, at the Arev event and, you know, some having a type like Senator Sanders as our president who has Medicare for all on top of his docket, it seemed closer than ever. And that's how we started off this year. And now look at where we are. I mean, really cannot be more different. Um, but at the same time, I think um, there will be absolutely no progress whatsoever with Trump still in the presidency. And so what progressives need to do right now is to really ensure that our voices matter, um, that if we do have a Biden administration, that they absolutely know that what they ran on was not enough, absolutely not. Um, that Trump was the threat that needed to be taken out and that uh, any democratic administration will have their feet held to the fire. One of the big reasons why I actually moved back to Tennessee though is because I saw this disregard of the South from the progressive movement. And it really bothered me. And I think, I think the case can be made that a huge reason why we lost, there's, there's many reasons, but a big reason why is because we didn't invest here. We didn't invest in the South. The, you know, Senator Sanders was doing really well until he needed votes here. And, you know, quite frankly, like his campaign didn't invest here. They, I don't remember him coming by and, you know, trying to persuade voters. And I think a lot on the left have sort of given up on thinking that they can have a stake here, that they can convince voters um, but I see it. I see the progressive energy here. Uh, and it's really exciting. And it just needs to be harnessed. And I feel like unless that happens, though, unless the South is able to build that progressive infrastructure, um, I think it'll be critical to ever passing any sort of major health reform, right? Like even in the state of Tennessee, we only have one representative um, who is on Medicare for all and um, and across the south I mean it's maybe like a couple more and that's it and you simply cannot pass a bill that way you need to have southern democrats um, part of that effort so I think we have to redefine what it means to be a southern democrat obviously again like there's much it's much more complex than that and this is a national movement it's not just on the south but I do think that we are a critical piece to this and I'm looking forward for the South being able to make that case and telling the national movement to pay more attention to us. Um, that being said, to answer your question perhaps more directly, <sighs> I'm not sure when Medicare for all will happen. I'm confident that now more than ever, it is clear that we need it. I think that the fight is far, far, far from over. Um, I mean, it's really going to take a huge effort to get people up and down the ballot. So not just the president, but in our Senate, in our House, in our city councils, in our state reps, in our state Senate, all of them need to have progressive representation. I mean, that's truly what it's going to take. 
significant campaign finance reform and getting money out of politics. Um, and also getting progressives to support um, policymakers. So like, for example, I, and this is not to bash on anyone who works on the Hill, but I didn't meet that many people who were there because they truly believed in the policies they were working on. They, would, they were there because it was a job, it's a career. Um, and so we need more people who believe in what we believe in in all of these spaces and we just need to fill them as much as possible. So that's a very long answer, but I've been thinking a lot about this. I really resonate with sort of your statement and insight into how the South can just be viewed sometimes as, I don't want to say irrelevant, but just not ever really, sometimes it seems like, especially in a progressive light, it's not placed at the forefront of the agenda, right? It's sort of like just the South. Um, when in reality, like you said, the people power and the organizing and really the heart of activism is, is in the South and there's so much potential here. So um, I'm just really glad you brought that up. Um, and I think this really ties into our next question, which is more of a visionary one and more of sort of tying into your own story and your own experience. We've talked a lot about some heavy, you know, some heavy things, Medicare for all, Green New Deal, racial injustice are all um, full of obstacles and defeats and hopelessness. But in this moment, we just wanted to ask what gives you hope and keeps you going in this fight for health justice and, and Medicare for all. Well, I can tell you what makes me angry enough to keep going. <laughs> um, and it's interesting because health policy is, is incredibly difficult. Uh, and I meet generations of health policy experts who have just been through it all. They were there in the Clinton campaign, the Clinton administration, Obama and the ACA, and, and they're jaded. I mean, they're just like, nothing will ever happen. There's no use in trying. Incrementalism is the way because it's so hard already. And I always just like, why do they feel that way? That's terrible. I hate that they feel that way. How dare they tell anybody to expect less just because they couldn't do it. Um, but I see how hard it is and how hard it is to, to stay wanting to dream big because, you know, quite frankly, like we don't get the wins <laughs> as often or, you know, when we would like. And so the way to stay hopeful, or at least reminding myself, I mean, it's just very much always staying close to the reasons why we need this. And, you know, for me personally, um, I was very rudely reminded as to why this was so important, but my father, like I mentioned, he was sick. And so um, he, we found out he had a tumor in his spine and this is all when COVID-19 was unraveling and um, we knew it was gonna be very expensive and very difficult. And so we were trying to see, you know, what our options were, but it got to a point where he could barely walk and we knew we had to do something right away. And so, you know, I tried to find a neurosurgeon. There's only three in the entire state that took his insurance. Um, pushed and pushed and pushed until we got an appointment, got an appointment. They said he needs to get this tumor out right away. Um, it's, you know, blocking up his spinal cord. He's might lose his ability to walk. And so <laughs> I'm, they're like, Oh, we're going to just have to get through this through the insurance. Um, but like, we'll have the surgery scheduled on Tuesday. And, you know, the second I heard the word insurance, I sort of flinched a little bit and I was like, no, nah, this will be fine. There's no reason nothing could go wrong. 
I get a call on Monday, the day before the surgery, and they're like, I'm so sorry, we're going to have to cancel. The insurance company denied your claim. And I was like, livid. I was like, what do you mean? They said they, the insurance company determined that this was not medically necessary. And so they won't cover the surgery. So either you can come up with a $6,000 down payment and pay $3,000 a month for ever because the surgery is going to cost a lot, or you'll have to cancel the surgery. And so they canceled the surgery. Um, and luckily, I mean, I had the agency to call this insurance company and, and fight them and get a doctor from their company on the phone. And eventually we got that appealed and overturned. But imagine if I didn't have an agency or I didn't understand how the healthcare system worked. Um, and my father very much could have become much more sicker and who knows what his, his the consequences would have been. Um, but you know, we've gotten the bill for, <laughs> and if it hadn't been covered, the cost of his care for the surgery in four days in the ICU was $159,000. And so it's like, they're, I, it's just mind blowing to me <laughs> about all of these things. And when I see that, it's like, it's like, I, there's no way we can give up. We cannot accept this. This is not okay. And too often, I mean, I hate the fact that I think Kaiser has this like, or NPR has this like website, like bill of the month, send us your outrageous surprise bill as if it's like, why are we normalizing that? This doesn't happen in other countries and absolutely shouldn't happen here. Um, there's you know, really no reason for it and it's, it's inhumane. Um, but to have that added stress on top of the fact that now my father is, is disabled because of the surgery, right? And he has to heal and he's not gonna be able to work. And we have to worry about that on top of healthcare costs and everything else. I mean, it's just all of that, all of those personal experiences. I, and again, we have more agency than a lot of families and it's still very difficult for us. I just can't imagine what it's like for so many. And so reminding myself of that and knowing that like we can't afford to stop, <laughs> nobody can. Um, so many people, working families and women and immigrants um, need us to keep going. And, you know, I think about this too, just for myself. And, you know, I, I definitely had a very long journey to get to where I am um, and like paid school by working two jobs while I was in school full time. And I did it. But if one thing had happened, if I had ever gotten sick or my father had been sick then or something had happened, I would not have made it. And I think about that a lot lately where it's like if anything like this healthcare related had happened during that time where I was fighting and struggling to survive, I wouldn't have made it. And that to me is I just feel like happens way too often where somebody is struggling and then they also have that happen to them and it's not fair. <laughs> it's simply not. And so I know I just shared a lot, but it's something I've been reflecting on a lot lately because it's been a hard year and it's hard to find hope. Um, it's hard to keep going, but I guess, yeah, we have to. <laughs> no choice. Thank you so much for sh sharing that story. I, I really, really felt it in my chest when you were talking about your father. And I'm real, I really appreciate how vulnerable you were with us and how powerful that story is because, I mean, you're not alone, right? This is happening to thousands and thousands of people all across the country with really similar versions of 
the same the same exact story and especially now during you know a global pandemic i can't imagine how terrifying it was for you all to be going to the hospital when it's you know that's such a dangerous thing now you know what's the first thing i did when they they told me they denied the insurance the denied the claim i googled how much the ceo of that company the insurance company makes in a year (laughs) and I don't know why it's the first thing I did, but I, this first thing I did, and he makes $27 million as his salary. And I was, I was just so mad. And especially this year, insurance companies are making record breaking profits and they had the gall to like deny this. I, the amount of anger I have felt <laughs> over the last several weeks has been, it's been uh, fun <laughs> to say the least. Something that, that, really also that really just struck me about that is that I think you're definitely not alone in that your anger is keeping you going. I mean, we're seeing, you know, all across the country still people are continuing to protest and scream and yell that Black Lives Matter. And we're also seeing not just the organizers from 2014 after Ferguson were seeing a whole slew of new people, a whole group of young people who were coming out and organizing events and fighting for their lives in this really communal way. Can you give some advice to your younger self and also to people who are currently fighting in politics right now? Well, I always say to younger folks that never, <laughs> never listen to anyone who's trying to tell you that you're, imp- you know, being impractical or you're just like a spoiled child that doesn't know what they're thinking. That don't they don't know the way the real world works. I mean, really, this this our gener- this current generation and the generations before us, they have no idea. I mean, the you know, your generation and my generation and, and the younger ones, I mean, the challenges that y'all have to face are completely unprecedented. And, and what it's going to take to address them, it, no previous generation had the tools, resources, creativity, or the drive to be able to address them. I mean, it's very much on this next generation to do that. Um, and they've been handed a lot of abilities that we I simply didn't even grow up with um and so you know I very much always tell people you know don't be so worried about like what are you going to be when you grow up right like find the problems that you want to solve um and make that your life's purpose and you know and 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 give everything that you can um and figure out (laughs) like very much understand who you are and what you can give um, and the best of yourself for those movements. I think um, especially right now though, what we're seeing in terms of people who are protesting very rightfully so and have a lot of anger right now. I mean, it's, it's crazy because, you know, we're very much, a lot of people are, have jobs that they have to work or don't have jobs, but, you know, instead need to be protesting on the streets and, in order to you know have some basic rights and so we were really working against us not working against ourselves but we're very much like under this like scarcity model where 
Like we barely have enough to survive yet. We're still having to go out there and fight for this. And this is very much what they want. Um, and so it feels like a matter of life and death because it is, and don't let anyone ever tell you that that's, you're taking it too dramatic or this is just history repeating itself. It'll pass. No, we are at an unprecedented time. Our, our democracy has disintegrated. Um, we are very much slipping into autocracy and we should not say that lightly. Um, we need to recognize the, the criticalness of this, of this moment and that the only ones who have the power to, to address this is our young generation. Absolutely. Well, I just wanted to thank you again for, for taking so much of your valuable time to speak with us. Um, I find your work and your words and, and your story to be so um, just inspiring. And um, I just, yeah, I really appreciate hearing what you have to say um, because I do, I resonate with so much of what you said about young people. I think it's so easy to deem younger folks as irrelevant or, you know, just crybabies when in reality we're just here to fight for our futures um but thank you so much for for speaking with us tonight i mean thank you i said this before we started recording but really both of you have given me so much like you had asked me what gives me hope like seeing you two do this and have a podcast that has the mission that it has and recognizes the problems around you and yet instead of just like sitting around and doing nothing you're you come together and you're having such critical conversations. Um, and the, the passion that you both are approaching this with is so inspiring. So thank you so much for doing this. You're making like high school me like so, so ecstatic. I, I truly never thought a <laughs> podcast like this in Tennessee would have existed at that age. So thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Rocky Top Sunrise. We're a part of the Tennessee Hollow Podcast Network, a family of podcasts talking about progressive issues in Tennessee. You can find us at tmholler.com and you can follow the holler at the TN Holler on all of our social media platforms. Rocky Top Sunrise is brought to you by the Sunrise Movement Tennessee. You can find us at Sunrise MBMTTN on all of our social media platforms. Rocky Top Sunrise comes to you every other Friday. And in two weeks, we'll be talking about climate change and why it's so important.